Emma Goldman's Living My Life, Chapter 1. It was the 15th of August, 1889, the day of my arrival in New York City. I was 20 years old. All that had happened in my life until that time was now left behind me, cast off like a worn-out garment. A new world was before me, strange and terrifying. But I had youth, good health, and a passionate ideal. Whatever the new held in store for me, I was determined to meet unflinchingly. How well I remember that day it was a Sunday. The West Shore train, the cheapest, which was all I could afford, had brought me from Rochester, New York, reaching Weehawken at eight o'clock in the morning. Thence I came by ferry to New York City. I had no friends there, but I carried three addresses, one of a married aunt, one of a young medical student I'd met in New Haven a year before, while working in a corset factory there, and one of the Freiheit, a German anarchist paper published by Johann Most. My entire possessions consisted of five dollars and a small handbag. My sewing machine, which was to help me to independence, I had checked as baggage. Ignorant of the distance from West 42nd Street to the Bowery where my aunt lived, and unaware of the enervating heat of a New York day in August, I started out on foot. How confusing and endless a large city seems to the newcomer, how cold and unfriendly. After receiving many directions and misdirections and making frequent stops at bewildering intersections, I landed in three hours at the photographic gallery of my aunt and uncle. Tired and hot, I did not at first notice the consternation of my relatives at my unexpected arrival. They asked me to make myself at home, gave me breakfast, and then plied me with questions. Why did I come to New York? Had I definitely broken with my husband? Did I have money? What did I intend to do? I was told that I could, of course, stay with them. Where else could you go, a young woman alone in New York? Certainly. But I would have to look for a job immediately. Business was bad, and the cost of living high. I heard it all as if in a stupor. I was too exhausted from my wakeful night's journey, the long walk, and the heat of the sun, which was already pouring down fiercely. The voices of my relatives sounded distant, like the buzzing of flies, and they made me drowsy. With an effort, I pulled myself together. I assured them I did not come to impose myself on them. A friend living on Henry Street was expecting me and would put me up. I had but one desire, to get out, away from the prattling, chilling voices. I left my bag and departed. The friend I'd invented in order to escape the hospitality of my relatives was only a slight acquaintance, a young anarchist by the name of A. Silateraf, whom I had once heard lecture in New Haven. Now I started out to find him. After a long search, I discovered the house, but the tenant had left. The janitor, at first very brusque, must have noticed my despair. He said he would look for the address that the family left when they moved. Presently he came back with the name of the street, but there was no number. What was I to do? How to find Silateroff in the vast city? I decided to stop at every house, first on one side of the street and then on the other. Up and down, six flights of stairs, I tramped, my head throbbing, my feet weary, the oppressive day was drawing to a close. At last, when I was about to give up the search, I discovered him on Montgomery Street on the fifth floor of a tenement house seething with humanity. A year had passed since our first meeting, but Solitaroff had not forgotten me. His greeting was genial and warm, as of an old friend. He told me that he shared a small apartment with his parents and little brother, but that I could have his room. He would stay with a fellow student for a few nights. He assured me that I would have no difficulty in finding a place. In fact, he knew two sisters who were living with their father in a two-room flat. They were looking for another girl to join them. After my new friend had fed me tea and some delicious Jewish cake and mother had baked, he told me about the different people I might meet. 
the activities of the Yiddish anarchists, and other interesting matters. I was grateful to my host, much more for his friendly concern and camaraderie than for the tea and cake. I forgot the bitterness that had filled my soul over the cruel reception given me by my own kin. New York no longer seemed the monster it had appeared in the endless hours of my painful walk on the Bowery. Later, Solitaroff took me to Saks Café on Suffolk Street, which, as he informed me, was the headquarters of the East Side Radicals, Socialists, and Anarchists, as well as of the young Yiddish writers and poets. Everybody foregathers there, he remarks. The Minkin sisters will no doubt also be there. For one who had just come away from a monotony of a provincial town like Rochester, and whose nerves were on edge from a night's trip in a stuffy car, the noise and turmoil that greeted us at Saks were certainly not very soothing. The place consisted of two rooms and was packed. Everybody talked, gesticulated, and argued in Yiddish and Russian and competing with the other. I was almost overcome in this strange human medley. My escort discovered two girls at a table. He introduced them as Anna and Helen Minkin. They were Russian Jewish working girls. Anna, the older, was about my own age. Helen, perhaps eighteen. Soon we came to an understanding about my living with them, and my anxiety and uncertainty were over. I had a roof over my head. I had found friends. The bedlam at Saks no longer mattered. I began to breathe freer, to feel less of an alien. While the four of us were having our dinner, and Solitaroff was pointing out to me the different people in the cafe, I suddenly heard a powerful voice call, Extra large steak! Extra cup of coffee! My own capital was so small, and the need for economy so great that I was startled by such apparent extravagance. Besides, Solitaroff had told me that only poor students, writers, and workers were the clients of Saks. I wondered who that reckless person could be and how he could afford such food. Who is that glutton, I asked. Solitaroff laughed aloud. That is Alexander Berkman. He can eat for three, but he rarely has enough money for, f for much food. When he has, he eats Saks out of his supplies. I'll introduce him to you. When we had finished our meal and several people came to our table to talk to Solitaroff, the man of the extra-large steak was still packing it away as if he had gone hungry for weeks. Just as we were about to depart, he approached us, and Solitaroff introduced him. He was no more than a boy, hardly eighteen, but with the neck and chest of a giant, his jaw was strong, made more pronounced by his thick lips. His face was almost severe, but for his high, studious forehead and intelligent eyes. A determined youngster, I thought. Presently, Berkman re remarked to me, Johann Most is speaking tonight. Do you want to come hear him? How extraordinary, I thought, that on my first day in New York I should have the chance to behold with my own eyes and hear the fiery man whom the Rochester press used to portray as the personification of the devil, a criminal, a bloodthirsty demon. I had planned to visit most in the office of his newspaper sometime later, but that the opportunity should present itself in such an unexpected manner gave me the feeling that something wonderful was about to happen, something that would decide the whole course of my life. On the way to the hall, I was too absorbed in my thoughts to hear much of the conversation that was going on between Berkman and the Minkin sisters. Suddenly I stumbled. I should have fallen had not Berkman gripped my arm and held me up. I have saved your life, he said jestingly. I hope I may be able to save yours some day, I quickly replied. The meeting place was a small hall behind a saloon through which one had to pass. It was crowded with Germans, drinking, smoking, and talking. Before long, Johann Most entered. My first impression of him was one of revulsion. He was of medium height, with a large head crowned with grayish, bushy hair, but his face was twisted out of form by an apparent dislocation of the left jaw. Only his eyes were soothing. They were blue and sympathetic. 
His speech was a scorching denunciation of American conditions, a biting satire on the injustice and brutality of the dominant powers, a passionate tirade against those responsible for the Haymarket tragedy and the execution of the Chicago anarchists in November 1887. He spoke eloquently and picturesquely, as if by magic his disfigurement disappeared. His lack of physical distinction was forgotten. He seemed transformed into some primitive power radiating hatred and love, strength and inspiration. The rapid current of his speech, the music of his voice, and his sparkling wit all combined to produce an effect almost overwhelming. He stirred me to my depths. Caught in the crowd that surged towards the platform, I found myself before most. Berkman was near and introduced me, but I was dumb with excitement and nervousness, full of the tumult of emotions most speech had aroused in me. That night I could not sleep. Again I lived through the events of 1887. Twenty months had passed since the Black Friday of November 11th when the Chicago men had suffered their martyrdom, yet every detail stood out clear before my vision and affected me as if it had happened but yesterday. My sister Helena and I had become interested in the fate of the men during the period of their trial. The reports in the Rochester newspapers irritated, confused, and upset us by their evident prejudice. The violence of the press, the bitter denunciation of the accused, the attacks on all foreigners, turned our sympathies to the Haymarket victims. We had learned of the existence in Rochester of a German socialist group that held sessions on Sunday in Germania Hall. We began to attend the meetings, my elder sister Helena on a few occasions only, and I regularly. The gatherings were generally uninteresting, but they offered an escape from the great dullness of my Rochester existence. There one heard at least something different from the everlasting talk about money and business, and one met people of spirit and ideas. One Sunday it was announced that a famous socialist speaker from New York, Johanna Graia, would lecture on the case, then being tried in Chicago. On the appointed day, I was the first in the hall. The huge place was crowded from top to bottom by eager men and women while the walls were lined with police. I had never before been at such a large meeting. I had seen gendarmes in St. Petersburg disperse small student gatherings, but that in the country which guaranteed free speech, officers armed with long clubs should invade an orderly assembly filled me with consternation and protest. Soon, the chairman announced the speaker. She was a woman in her thirties, pale and ascetic-looking, with large, luminous eyes. She spoke with great earnestness, in a voice vibrating with intensity. Her manner engrossed me. I forgot the police, the audience, and everything else about me. I was aware only of the frail woman in black crying out her passionate indictment against the forces that were about to destroy eight human lives. The entire speech concerned the stirring events in Chicago. She began by relating the historical background of the case. She told of the labor strikes that broke out throughout the country in 1886 for the demand of an eight-hour workday. The center of the movement was Chicago, and there the struggle between toilers and their bosses became intense and bitter. A meeting of the striking employees of the McCormick Harvester Company in that city was attacked by police. Men and women are beaten, and several persons killed. To protest against the outrage, a mass meeting was called in Haymarket Square on May 4th. It was addressed by Albert Parsons, August Spies, Adolf Fischer, and others, and was quiet and orderly. This was attested to by Carter Harrison, mayor of Chicago, who had attended the meeting to see what was going on. The mayor left, satisfied that everything was all right, and he informed the captain of the district to that effect. It was getting cloudy, a light rain began to fall, and the people started to disperse, only a few remaining while one of the last speakers was addressing the audience. Then, Captain Ward, accompanied by a strong force of police, suddenly appeared on the square. He ordered the meeting to disperse forthwith. 
This is an orderly assembly, the chairman replied, whereupon the police fell upon the people, clubbing them unmercifully. Then something flashed through the air and exploded, killing a number of police officers and wounding a score of others. It was never ascertained who the actual culprit was, and the authorities apparently made little effort to discover him. Instead, orders were immediately issued for the arrest of all the speakers at Haymarket meeting and other prominent anarchists. The entire press and bourgeoisie of Chicago and of the whole country began shouting for the blood of the prisoners. A veritable campaign of terror was carried on by the police, who were given moral and financial encouragement by the Citizens Association to further their murderous plan to get the anarchists out of the way. The public mind was so inflamed by the atrocious stories circulated by the press and against the leaders of the strike that a fair trial for them became an impossibility. In fact, the trial proved the worst frame-up in the history of the United States. The jury was picked for conviction. The district attorney announced in open court that it was not only the arrested men who were the accused, but that anarchy was on trial, and that it was to be exterminated. The judge repeatedly denounced the prisoners from the bench, influencing the jury against them. The witnesses were terrorized or bribed, with the result that eight men, innocent of the crime and in no way connected with it, were convicted. The incited state of the public mind and the general prejudice against anarchists, coupled with the employer's bitter opposition to the eight-hour movement, constituted the atmosphere that favored the judicial murder of Chicago anarchists. Five of them, Albert Parsons, August Spies, Louis Ling, Adolf Fischer, and George Engel, were sentenced to die by hanging. Michael Schwab and Samuel Fielden were doomed to life imprisonment. Neba received a 15-year sentence. The innocent blood of the Haymarket martyrs was calling for revenge. At the end of Graia's speech, I knew what I had surmised all along. The Chicago men were innocent. They were to be put to death for their ideal. But what was their ideal? Johanna Graia spoke of Parsons, Spies, Ling, and the others as socialists, but I was ignorant of the real meaning of socialism. What I had heard from the local speakers had impressed me as colorless and mechanistic. On the other hand, the papers called these men anarchists, bomb-throwers. What was anarchism? It was all very puzzling. But I had no time for further contemplation. The people were filing out, and I got up to leave. Graia, the chairman, and a group of friends were still on the platform. As I turned towards them, I saw Graia motioning to me. I was startled, my heart beating violently, and my feet felt leaden. When I approached her, she took me by the hand and said, I never saw a face that reflected such a tumult of emotions as yours. You must be feeling the impending tragedy immensely. Do you know the men? In a trembling voice, I replied, Unfortunately not, but I do feel the case with every fiber, and when I heard you speak, it seemed to me as if I knew them. She put her hand on my shoulder. I have a feeling that you will know them better as you learn their ideal, and that you will make their cause your own. I walked home in a dream. Sister Helena was already asleep. But I had to share my experience with her. I woke her up and recited to her the whole story, giving her almost a verbatim account of the speech. I must have been very dramatic, because Helena exclaimed, The next thing I'll hear about my little sister is that she, too, is a dangerous anarchist. Some weeks later, I had occasion to visit a German family I knew. I found them very much excited. Somebody from New York had sent them a German paper, Die Freiheit, edited by Johann Most. It was filled with news about the events in Chicago. The language fairly took my breath away. It was so different from what I'd heard at the socialist meetings, and even from Johanna Graia's talk. It seemed lava, shooting forth flames of ridicule, scorn, and defiance. It breathed deep hatred of the powers that were preparing the crime in Chicago. I began to read Die Freiheit regularly. I sent for the literature advertised in the paper, and I had devoured every line on anarchism I could get, every word about the men, their lives, their work, 
I read about their heroic stand while on trial and their marvelous defense. I saw a new world opening before me. The terrible thing everyone feared, yet hoped would not happen, actually occurred. Extra editions of the Rochester papers carried the news. The Chicago anarchists had been hanged. We were crushed, Helena and I. The shock completely unnerved my sister. She could only wring her hands and weep silently. I was in a stupor. A feeling of numbness came over me, something too horrible even for tears. In the evening, we went to our father's house. Everybody talked about the Chicago events. I was entirely absorbed in what I felt as my own loss. Then I heard the coarse laugh of a woman. In a shrill voice, she sneered, What's all this lament about? The men were murderers. It is well they were hanged. With one leap, I was at the woman's throat. Then I felt myself torn back. Someone said, The child has gone crazy. I wrenched myself free, grabbed a pitcher of water from the table, and threw it with all my force into the woman's face. Out! Out, I cried, or I will kill you. The terrified woman made for the door, and I dropped to the ground in a fit of crying. I was put to bed, and soon I fell into a deep sleep. The next morning I woke as from a long illness, but free from the numbness and depression of those harrowing weeks of waiting, ending with a final shock. I had a distinct sensation that something new and wonderful had been born in my soul. A great ideal, a burning faith, a determination to dedicate myself to the memory of my martyred comrades, to make their cause my own, to make known to the world their beautiful lives and heroic deaths. Johanna Graia was more prophetic than she had probably realized. My mind was made up. I would go to New York, to Johann Most. He would help me prepare myself for my new task. But my husband, my parents, how would they meet my decision? I had been married only ten months. The union had not been happy. I had realized almost from the beginning that my husband and I were at opposite poles, with nothing in common, not even sexual blending. The venture, like everything else that had happened to me since I had come to America, had proved most disappointing. America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, what a farce it now seemed to me. Yet how I had fought with my father to get him to let me to go to America with Helena. In the end, I had won. In late in December 1885, Helena and I had left St. Petersburg for Hamburg, there embarking on the steamer Elba for the promised land. Another sister had preceded us by a few years, had married, and was living in Rochester. Repeatedly, she had written to Helena to come to her, that she was lonely. At last, Helena had decided to go. But I could not support the thought of separation from the one who meant more to me than even my mother. Helena also hated to leave me behind. She knew of the bitter friction that existed between father and me. She offered to pay my fare, but father would not consent to my going. I pleaded, begged, wept. Finally, I threatened to jump into the Neva, whereupon he yielded. Equipped with twenty-five rubles, all that the old man would give me, I left without regrets. Since my earliest recollection, home had been stifling, my father's presence terrifying. My mother, while less violent with the children, never showed much warmth. It was always Helena who gave me affection, who filled my childhood with whatever joy it had. She would continually shoulder the blame for the rest of the children. Many blows intended for my brother and me were given Helena. Now we were completely together, nobody would separate us. We traveled steerage, where the passengers were herded together like cattle. My first contact with the sea was terrifying and fascinating. The freedom from home, the beauty and wonder of the endless expanse and its varying moods, and the exciting anticipation of what the new land would offer stimulated my imagination and sent my blood tingling. The last day of our journey comes vividly to my mind. Everybody was on deck. Helena and I stood pressed to each other, 
enraptured by the sight of the harbor and the Statue of Liberty suddenly emerging from the mist. Ah, there she was, a symbol of hope, of freedom, of opportunity. She held her torch high to light the way to the free country, the asylum for the oppressed of all lands. We too, Helena and I, would find a place in the generous heart of America. Our spirits were high, our eyes filled with tears. Gruff voices broke in upon our reverie. We were surrounded by gesticulating people, angry men, hysterical women, screaming children. Guards roughly pushed us hither and thither, shouted orders to get ready to be transferred to Castle Garden, the clearinghouse for immigrants. The scenes in Castle Garden were appalling, the atmosphere charged with antagonism and harshness. Nowhere could one see a sympathetic official face. There was no provision for the comfort of new arrivals, the pregnant women, and the young children. The first day on American soil proved a violent shock. We were possessed by one desire to escape from the ghastly place. We'd heard that Rochester was the flower city of New York, but we arrived there on a bleak and cold January morning. My sister Elena, heavy with her first child, and Aunt Rachel met us. Lena's rooms were small, but they were bright and spotless. The room prepared for Helena and myself was filled with flowers. Throughout the day, people came in and out, relatives I had never known, friends of my sister and her husband, neighbors. All wanted to see us, to hear about the old country. They were Jews who had suffered much in Russia. Some of them had even been in pogroms. Life in the new country, they said, was hard. They were still possessed by nostalgia of their home that had never been a home. Among the visitors, there were some who had prospered. One man boasted that his six children were all working, selling newspapers, shining shoes. Everybody was concerned about what we were going to do. One coarse-looking fellow concentrated his attention on me. He kept staring at me all the evening, scanning me up and down. He even came over and tried to feel my arms. Gave me the sensation of standing naked on the marketplace. I was outraged, but I did not want to insult my sister's friends. I was utterly alone, and I rushed out of the room. A longing possessed me for what I left behind. St. Petersburg, my beloved Neva, my friends, my books and music. I became aware of loud voices in the next room. I heard the man who had enraged me say, I can get her a job at Garson Myers. The wages will be small, but she will soon find a feller to marry her. Such a buxom girl with her red cheeks and blue eyes will not have to work long. Any man will snatch her up and keep her in silks and diamonds. I thought of father. He had tried desperately to marry me off at the age of fifteen. I had protested, begging to be permitted to continue my studies. In his frenzy, he threw my French grammar into the fire, shouting, Girls do not have to learn much. All a Jewish daughter needs to know is how to prepare good food to fish, cut noodles fine, and give the man plenty of children. I would not listen to his schemes. I wanted to study, to know life, to travel. Besides, I would never marry for anything but love, I stoutly maintained. It was really to escape my father's plans for me that I had insisted on going to America. Now attempts to marry me off pursued me even in the new land. I was determined not to be bartered. I would go to work. Sister Elena had left for America when I was about eleven. I used to spend much time with my grandmother in Kovno while my people lived in Popeland, a small town in the Baltic province of Courland. Lena had always been hostile to me, and unexpectedly I had discovered a reason. I could not have been more than six at the time, while Lena was two years older. We were playing a game of marbles. Somehow, Sister Lena thought I was winning too often. She flew into a rage, gave me a violent kick, and shouted, Just like your father! He too cheated us. He robbed us of the money our father left. I hate you. You are not my sister. The effect of her outburst on me was petrifying. 
For a few moments I sat riveted to the ground, staring at Lena in silence. Then the tension gave way to a fit of crying. I ran to Sister Helena, to whom I carried all my childish woes. I demanded to know what Lena had meant when she said that my father had robbed her, and why I was not her sister. As usual, Helena took me into her arms, tried to comfort me, and made light of Lena's words. I went to Mother, and from her I learned that there had been another father, Helena's and Lena's. He had died young, and Mother then had chosen my father, mine and my baby brother's. She said that my father was also Helena's and Lena's, even if they were his stepchildren. It was true, she explained, that father had used the money left to the two girls. He had invested it in business and failed. He had meant it for the good of all of us, but what mother told me did not lessen my great hurt. Father had no right to use that money, I cried. They are orphans. It is a sin to rob orphans. I wish I were grown up, then I could pay back the money. Yes, I must pay back. I must atone for father's sin. I had been told by my German nurse that whoever was guilty of robbing orphans would never get to heaven. I had no clear conception of that place. My people, while keeping Jewish rites and going to the synagogue on Saturdays and holidays, rarely spoke to us about religion. I got my idea of God and devil, sin, and punishment from my nurse and our Russian peasant servants. I was sure Father would be punished if I did not pay back his debt. Eleven years had passed since that incident. I had long forgotten the hurt Lane had caused, but I by no means felt the great affection for her that I bore my dear Helena. All the way to America I had been anxious about what Lena's feelings might be towards me, but when I saw her, heavy with her first child, her small face pale and shrunken, my heart went out to her as if there had never been a shadow between us. The day after our arrival, we three sisters remained alone. Lena told us how lonely she had been, how she had longed for us and for our people. We learned of the hard life that had been hers, first as a domestic servant in Aunt Rachel's house, later as a buttonhole maker in Stein's clothing factory. How happy she was now, with her own home at last, and the joy of her expected child. Life is still difficult, Lena said. My husband is earning twelve dollars a week as a tinsmith, working on roofs and beating sun and the cold wind, always in danger. He had begun working as a child of eight in Berdichev, Russia, she added, and has been working ever since. When Helena and I retired to our room, we agreed that we must both go to work at once. We could not add to the burden of our brother-in-law. Twelve dollars a week and a child on the way? Some days later, Helena got a job retouching negatives, which had been her work in Russia. I found employment at Garson and Myers, selling ulsters ten and a half hours a day for two dollars and fifty cents a week.